Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. I have such fond memories of the Northwood Shopping Center at 13 Mile and Woodward Avenue in Royal Oak. When I was very small, my grandfather and I would go to the Saunders ice cream shop. He'd get a hot fudge cream puff, and I'd order a scoop of ice cream. There was a dime store in the shopping center, Kresge or Woolworth, I can't remember. We would browse the store sometimes or have a meal at the lunch counter. In 1978, my grandmother's brand-new Ford Thunderbird was stolen from the parking lot at Northwood. The theft was a big deal to a little kid like me. And it was around that same time I learned about unions, when I saw the employees of Cunningham's Drugstore striking for better working conditions. Northwood isn't there anymore. Not really. There is a shopping complex on the location, but it's owned by Beaumont Hospital, and it's just not the same place that it used to be. Not only does that spot have a lot of memories for me, but some bad things happened there. Some very bad things. So come with me to March 31st, 1990, when Northwood was the site of a kidnapping, which led to one of the most brutal murders the community had ever seen. Rosemarie Cato was a lovely, hardworking woman. She was the mother of a toddler-aged daughter and in the middle of a divorce from her husband, Stephen Rahim Cato. The divorce, which she wanted and Stephen did not, was an ugly one. There was a lot of anger and resentment. Rosemarie just wanted to be done with the marriage and move on with her life. Her mother was helping her with a place to stay and providing childcare while she got on her feet. At the end of March, Rosemarie was in touch with Stephen. She was entitled to items from the marital home and was trying to make arrangements to get them. On Friday, March 30th, she worked an overnight shift, and on Saturday morning, one of her co-workers drove out of the Beaumont campus and watched as Rosemarie headed east on 13 Mile Road. She was headed toward the Northwood Shopping Plaza. Rosemary's mom, Clara Helcom, called police at 10 o'clock that night to report her daughter missing. On Monday, April 2nd, the Detroit Free Press reported this news. Police are seeking information on the whereabouts of a nurse who has not been seen since leaving work Saturday morning. Rosemary Cato, 30, a registered nurse, was last seen leaving William Beaumont Hospital at 7.30 a.m and has not made any contact with her family or friends since. Police found her car on Sunday in the Perry Drugstore parking lot in the Northwood Shopping Center at 13 Mile Road and Woodward Avenue near the hospital. Like I mentioned earlier, Northwood had several businesses, but most of them were closed at that early hour on a Saturday morning. One place that was open was Perry Drugs. And in the ensuing days, the story of what happened began to unfold. 
Rosemarie decided to make a quick stop to pick up a few things and parked her gold Toyota Tercel near the entrance to the drugstore. She was headed into the store when she was intercepted by two men. The Free Press reported, A Berkeley nurse missing since she left work Saturday morning at William Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak may have been abducted. That's all the public and the press knew at the time, but investigators knew more. Detectives were, of course, aware of the split between Stephen and Rosemarie, and spoke with Stephen twice in the 24 hours after her disappearance. Any good investigator takes a hard look at the husband, and when they focused on Stephen Cato, he aroused their suspicions. He had fresh abrasions on his hands. He spoke about his wife in the past tense. Keep in mind, Rosemarie was only a missing person at that point. Investigators thought Stephen Cato was nervous and noted his legs were shaking. In addition, what happened to Rosemarie in the parking lot was witnessed by a number of people, and investigators were speaking to all of them. According to a story in the Free Press published Thursday, April 5th, five days after her abduction, Royal Oak Police impounded Stephen Cato's red, 1985 Ford van late Tuesday after a witness reported seeing a similar vehicle parked near the missing woman's car at the time of the disappearance. A witness reported seeing two white men suspiciously buying beer at Perry Drugs that morning at 7.30 a.m. Police sought the owner of a red Ford Escort GT seen in the parking lot, and they wanted information on a man and a woman who were seen arguing near a light-colored station wagon with faux wood grain side panels. Now, listeners, some eyewitness accounts would be more accurate and more useful than others. The pivotal eyewitness in Rosemarie Cato's abduction was a man who we will call Mr. Smith. Smith was a regular at the Perry Drug Store in Northwood Shopping Center. It was his habit to stop in each Saturday morning and get the paper. He was making his usual newspaper run on Saturday, March 31, 1990, when he witnessed the following. And this comes directly from court records. Mr. Smith was just 12 feet away from Rosemarie Cato, a woman he did not know, when he heard a commotion. He looked up and saw two, possibly Chaldean men, one outside the station wagon and one in the back seat. He heard the man outside the car tell the woman in a loud, angry voice to Get in the fucking car, bitch. Smith described the woman as wearing a black and white checkered coat, a purple sweater, blue jeans, and boots. Now, a note here for those who may not know. The Detroit area is home to the largest Arab population outside of the Middle East. A large portion of that population is made up of Chaldeans. Chaldeans are a Catholic, ethnos-religious group from northern Iraq. Many of them immigrated to the United States in the 1970s and 80s and came to Detroit looking for opportunities with the automakers. Despite having a front-row seat for the abduction of a woman, Smith was a reluctant witness. After observing the abduction of Ms. Cato, he went home and told his wife what he'd seen. She demanded that he not get involved, and they argued over whether or not he should call the police. Mr. Smith learned shortly thereafter, through the media, that a local woman was missing. He saw a picture of Ms. Cato in the local paper and realized this was the woman whose abduction he had witnessed. 
Unfortunately, this information was not enough to make him pick up the phone and call police. Meanwhile, the community came out in force in the search for Rosemarie and distributed 30,000 flyers, encouraging donations to a reward fund. It's a shame we can't say the same about Mr. Smith. The court record continues. The following Saturday, when he again went to Northwood to buy newspapers, someone with a flyer approached him and asked if he had seen anything the previous Saturday. He replied that he had, but that he did not want to become involved for fear of reprisal. The man asked him to call the police and inform them of what he'd seen. And listeners, as a missing persons advocate, it's important to pause here and point out the unbelievable value of public information campaigns when a person goes missing. In this case, it was quite literally a volunteer handing out posters who uncovered a key witness. Visibility is so important to resolving these cases, but I digress. The interaction with the volunteer did finally spur Mr. Smith to act. Smith made an anonymous call to the Royal Oak Police Department and told the officer answering the phone that he saw two men abduct the missing Cato woman, but he refused to give his name. With the arrival of a third Saturday, it was clear that the Royal Oak Police were not going to let it drop, again from the court record. The following Saturday, when Smith arrived to buy his newspapers, Detective George Johnson of the Royal Oak Police Department approached him and asked if he was the anonymous caller. He admitted that he was and told Detective Johnson what he saw on March 31st, but he refused to give Johnson his name. Johnson asked him to describe the woman he'd seen being abducted. And Smith gave investigators the description we discussed in the beginning, Rosemarie wearing a black and white checkered coat, a purple sweater, blue jeans, and boots. Upon hearing his description, Detective Johnson realized he had described Ms. Cato, including the clothes she was wearing when she disappeared. Johnson then produced a photo of Rosemarie, and Smith confirmed that yes, she was the woman he saw being forced into the car. He related that he had seen her on prior occasions in the drugstore at Northwood Center and recognized her because she was attractive. At last, investigators have opened a valve and information began to flow. Johnson then asked his reluctant witness to describe the men. He said the man outside the car was 30 to 40 years old, dark-complexioned, dark hair, wearing working man-type clothes. He described the man inside the car as white, possibly Chaldean, with dark hair, a receding hairline, and a brown sports coat. Smith's description of the man in the back seat fit the general description of Stephen Cato. Detective Johnson showed Smith a picture of Stephen Cato and asked if he looked like the man in the back seat, and Smith said yes, that was the man who had pulled Rosemarie into the car. Smith, who still did not want to be involved in the investigation, left Northwood, and as he drove away, Detective Johnson noted his license plate number in case they needed his name and address for future reference. Smith may not have wanted to be involved, but his testimony would be vital to the case against Stephen Cato. As the days stretched into weeks with no sign of Rosemarie, investigators noted Rosemarie was granted custody of their two-year-old daughter just four days before she was abducted. With Rosemarie missing, Stephen Cato filed for custody. 
Thankfully, Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Barry Howard awarded temporary custody to Rosemary's mom, Clara Helcom. And this is a good spot to point out, despite all suspicions, investigators had only a missing persons case at this point. In the eyes of the law, there was no evidence yet that a crime had been committed. Everything hinged on finding Rosemary. Those efforts were, unfortunately, complicated by an onslaught of wild, downright bizarre tips from the public. By the third week of April, the Free Press reported, anonymous letters sent to the Oakland County Sheriff's Department last week claimed that missing nurse Rosemary Cato was sacrificed on April 7th during a satanic ritual at the Bald Mountain Recreation Area in Orion Township. It's ridiculous, Lieutenant Dennis Patton said Thursday. It's probably just some nut. Police resources were taxed with every report, but the investigative code demanded no stone be left unturned. Sheriff's deputies returned to the recreation area Thursday afternoon, guided by an unidentified Orion Township man who said he discovered what might be a satanic altar while rabbit hunting last year. Sheriff's Lieutenant Doug Molinar said the site appeared to be a child's makeshift fort. Investigators also took a report from a woman who claimed to have had a psychic vision and a numerologist who said he had a mathematical formula that would provide the answers, but neither led to the discovery of Rosemary Cato. On May 1st, two recreational scuba divers discovered a body in the St. Clair River near Sarnia, Ontario. From the Free Press, it was about 30 to 50 feet from the river's edge in Sarnia, a concrete block had been tied to her waist with a nylon rope. And listeners, I tried really hard not to imagine what that was like, being on a recreational dive and discovering a body tied to a concrete block in a murky river. At any rate, Royal Oak Police determined it was not Rosemarie due to the body's state of decomposition, so the search continued. Spring was approaching. The trees would blossom, flowers would bloom, and students would be set free for a season in the sun. It should have been a joyful time, and people did the best they could. A collective of Detroit musicians and comedians put together their talents for a show to benefit Rosemary's Reward Fund, which had just reached $7,000. On May 5, 1990, more than a month after she disappeared, Rosemary's childhood friend, Linda Baldiga told a reporter that they still held out hope for finding Rosemary alive. We have to believe that, she said. But with every day that went by, hope for an answer began to fade. And then, a terrible discovery. On May 9, 1990, the Lansing State Journal reported, a body tossed along a rural Macomb County road was identified as that of a suburban Detroit nurse, missing since March. Rosemarie Cato's remains were found Monday by a farmer who was preparing to plow a field near I-94 in northern Macomb County. The Beaumont Hospital nurse was identified Tuesday through dental records, said Dr. Werner Spitz, Macomb County medical examiner. The medical examiner also confirmed Rosemarie's cause of death. It was a brutal murder, six or seven blows with a blunt object to the head. Rosemary's two-year-old daughter, Kathleen, 
will grow up without her mother. And as details trickled in, the reality became horrifying. Rosemary's body was found in several plastic bags. If not for the intensely evil nature of the crime, the most surprising part of the story might have been the part where Royal Oak Police Sergeant Jerry Ganey told the reporter that they had no suspects in the case. If you need an example of an outright and justifiable lie from law enforcement, there you go. They definitely had a suspect. Within hours, investigators were granted search warrants for the Cato home, and Stephen was compelled to provide blood and hair samples, again from court records. While searching the house on May 10th, 1990, officers found a Builder's Square receipt for a split wedge dated March 27, 1990. This was the day the Cato's divorce became final. If you don't know Builder's Square, they were a precursor to Home Depot in the Detroit area. After noting that Stephen Cato did not have either a fireplace, a woodpile, or any recently felled trees on his property, the receipt was seized as evidence. A detective then went to the store where the wedge was purchased and bought another exactly like it. Dr. Werner Spitz had already conducted an autopsy, had concluded that the cause of death was several blows to the head with a blunt instrument. After Spitz released his findings, officers took the split wedge which they'd purchased to Spitz and asked him whether it was consistent with the wounds found on Ms. Cato's head. Dr. Spitz compared the wedge to the wounds and concluded that a split wedge was consistent with the wounds and could very well be the weapon used to kill Ms. Cato. Sure, that's circumstantial evidence, but it's only prudent to mention the actual murder weapon was never found. Nevertheless, in questioning witnesses in the case, investigators learned Rose Marie's own words pointed them in the right direction. The day before she disappeared, she told her mother and a friend that she would be meeting with Stephen and his brother after she got off work the next morning, because they were going to help her move the last of her stuff. Mr. Smith had witnessed her abduction and given, begrudgingly, a solid description of the suspects. And eyewitnesses saw a red van near Rosemary's car, as we discussed earlier. According to the record, one witness testified to seeing such a van in the parking lot at Northwood Center around 7 a.m. When he looked out in the parking lot around 7.30, the same witness saw a Toyota and noticed that the van was gone. Stephen Cato, he owned a full-size red Ford Econoline van. Investigators were able to piece together Stephen Cato's movements on the morning of Rosemary's abduction, too. Stephen had been scheduled to open his brother's store that morning. At 9.30 a.m., two hours after her abduction, he called his brother and told him he was having trouble getting his van started, and he wouldn't be able to open the store. At 11 a.m. in Chesterfield Township, which is in northern Macomb County, we have another eyewitness. At approximately 11 a.m. on March 31, 1990, two men were seen in Chesterfield Township standing by the side of a full-size dark red van on a country road. Next to the van were several garbage bags. The description given of the two men matched the description of the two men Mr. Smith described as the abductors of Rosemary Cato. As the witness drove past the scene, one of the men glared at him. 
This witness described the second man as looking like Stephen Cato. A couple hours later, Stephen showed up at his brother's store driving the van. Both physical evidence and eyewitness testimony were piling up against Stephen. And we have a brief note from our research crew here. We do not see a clear explanation on how many vehicles Rosemarie Cato's kidnappers had at the scene. Two vehicles? Maybe a station wagon and Stephen's red van? You can at me after the show if you know the answer, because I'm curious. Listeners, I'm hesitant to dive fully into the forensic evidence, lest I lead you down a gruesome path through the murder and dismemberment of Rosemarie Cato. This is just me talking to you right now. Researching this stuff, it gets in your head and it can mess with your sleep. The details found in the forensic investigation of Rosemary's remains have given me more than one fitful night already, and they're going to stay with me for some time. If you want to know the full details, they are publicly available online. Suffice to say that linens, hair dyes, and one of Rosemary's dislodged tooth fillings all paint an incredibly brutal and violent picture of her murder, with Stephen Cato as the perpetrator. But investigators concluded they did not believe Stephen could have accomplished the crime without an accomplice. Just before Memorial Day 1990, Cato was arrested. The Port Huron Times-Herald reported, More arrests are expected in the slaying of a nurse whose dismembered body was found weeks after she disappeared, authorities said after charging her estranged husband with the murder. We believe there is at least one other person involved, and that's why you get the conspiracy charges, said the Oakland County prosecutor. But as far as I can tell, no one has ever been charged as being Cato's accomplice. And on June 7, 1990, Stephen Cato was bound over for trial. As I mentioned earlier, Stephen Cato was a Chaldean, a Catholic ethno-religious group from northern Iraq. And in June of 1990, Chuck Moss, writing for the Free Press, lamented tribalism and the fear of the other. Do you remember Joe Passano and Chris Michaels, the two teenage boys who viciously murdered Glenn and Wanda Tarr? Do you know what ethnic group they belong to? Does it matter? Then why are some folks making such a fuss about accused wife killer Stephen Cato's Chaldean background? And listeners, I don't know if Mr. Moss knew exactly how prophetic his words would be when judged from our post-9-11 vantage point, some 30-odd years down the line, but his sentiments reflect the time. Rosemary's death was on the hearts and minds of Detroiters and Michiganders in the summer of 1990, and Stephen Cato's resultant legal headlines were in the papers almost every day. Moss's editorial continued, You'd think that by now we'd be used to this venerable pattern and see in recent Middle Eastern immigrants the image of our grandparents, but no. The different and the alien still scare us. Stephen Cato's crime somehow becomes something only they can do. They, the other. The blacks, the white folks, the Arabs, the Koreans, the Japanese, the Mexicans, the other. And yes, there were local voices who used Stephen Cato's arrest to achieve their own goals in fostering resentment and racism and fear of the other. But it's sadly ironic that Mr. Moss wrote that editorial in June of 1990, because in another month, Iraq would overrun the borders of their neighbor, Kuwait, 
and anti-Iraqi sentiment in the United States would reach a fever pitch. It's about to get worse. As New Year's Eve came and went, and 1990 became 1991, Americans knew we were headed to war in Iraq. By March, Cato's attorney cried foul. How is an Iraqi going to get a fair trial at this point? asked one of the lawyers on Cato's defense team. The judge proceeded carefully. The Free Press reported, Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Alex Gilbert has allocated considerably more time than usual for jury selection in the Cato case. Picking a jury, which usually takes less than a day, is expected to take up to a week. She has promised she will not push us and she will allow us to get as fair a jury as we can in these times under these circumstances, said Richard Lustig, one of Cato's defense attorneys. Cato's attorneys staged a full-out assault on the truth. In addition to stoking talk of anti-Iraqi bias, they characterized the authorities as negligent for not putting him in a photo lineup shown to Mr. Smith and to another eyewitness. Cato's attorney would later file for a writ of habeas corpus based on these grounds. Through the fall of 1990, there were some questions about the admissibility of the eyewitness testimony for Mr. Smith and the other eyewitness. A hearing was set for November, and in December, we heard a ruling was coming soon. And then just before Christmas, it happened. The judge ruled the eyewitness testimony was admissible, and Mr. Smith and the other eyewitness, the man who saw the red van with two men along a country road, would be allowed to testify to what they saw. One other piece of evidence was ruled inadmissible. Clara Helcom, Rosemary's mother and two-year-old Kathleen Cato's grandmother, had previously recounted a conversation with the toddler several weeks before Rosemary's body was found. Helcom said the child told her, after talking with her father on the telephone, Mommy's gone. She's dead. Judge Alice Gilbert was originally inclined to allow the girl's testimony, but later decided the statement didn't constitute an excited utterance, as required by Michigan law governing testimony by children. Nevertheless, the trial of Stephen Cato would go forward. But not everything went as planned. Early in the trial, Medical examiner Werner Spitz staged a demonstration of how he believed the metal log-splitting wedge had been used to murder Rosemarie. The idea was to leave a mark in the back of a legal pad for the jury to see, one that resembled the mark in the back of Rosemarie's skull. But the demonstration didn't work. Werner Spitz repeatedly slammed the sharpened edge of a heavy metal wedge into the cardboard back of a pad of yellow legal paper during testimony on Tuesday. Are you using the corner, doctor? Prosecutor Zubel asked Spitz after the demonstration failed. I believe you're using the flat portion of the wedge. Zubel's remarks prompted an angry objection from defense lawyer Neil Fink. This is not a theater. Fink said, adding the experiments should have been done in a laboratory. The defense asked for a mistrial, but the judge disagreed and the trial proceeded. The jury heard most of what we've discussed so far, the eyewitness accounts, Stephen Cato's movements, his red van, even Rosemarie's own words. 1991 was the tail end of the pre-DNA era, and every detail was important. 
On Friday, April 5, 1991, both sides had presented their cases and the jury retired for deliberations. In closing, Prosecutor Brian Zubel said, Rosemarie had only one enemy in the world, and until March 31st, she probably didn't know that. Zubel told the jury defense lawyer Neil Fink would have you send the defendant home to the daughter whose mother the defendant butchered. I urge you not to do that. On that Friday afternoon, the jury spent almost two hours in the jury room before returning home for the weekend. On Monday, they resumed deliberating, and on Wednesday, the Detroit Free Press printed the news. For one juror, the most damning piece of evidence was a receipt for a splitting wedge spiked on a spindle in Stephen Cato's kitchen. For another, it was two pieces of toweling, one containing a hair from Stephen Cato's head, found with Rosemary's decomposing, dismembered body. In the end, all 12 jurors agreed with what Assistant Oakland County Prosecutor Brian Zubel had argued throughout. No one else in the world would have wanted Rosemarie Cato dead but her ex-husband. Stephen Cato was found guilty of murder in the first degree, conspiracy to commit murder, kidnapping, and conspiracy to commit kidnapping. Pale from spending nearly a year behind bars, Cato, age 44, showed no reaction to the verdicts. I have faith in God, he said with a smile, holding his thumbs up as he was led, handcuffed from the courtroom. As the courtroom emptied out, Rosemary's mother, Clara Halcombe, shed quiet tears of joy. All we wanted was justice, and we got what we wanted. By the time the verdict was read, Kathleen Cato had been living with her grandmother for a year, since the day her mother, Rosemarie, disappeared. Just three years old in 1990, she was too young to understand that her mother was not coming back. Clara told the Free Press, Kathleen talks about her all the time. She talks about when Mommy comes back from heaven, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. At the time, Halcombe told the reporter she intended to file for permanent custody, and that's exactly what happened. Kathleen grew up in the custody of her grandmother. Stephen Cato, Michigan Department of Corrections number 216400 looks quite healthy behind bars these days at the G. Robert Cotton Correctional Facility in Jackson County, Michigan. His habeas application on the grounds of an improper photo lineup was denied. Stephen Cato is serving life without parole and will die in prison. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.